0: there we go all right i didn't have the microphone on book of amos i'm glad i looked at the meter or i would have done an hour thinking the microphone now y'all would have realized the microphone whatnot somebody would have realized it all right book of amos this is part 20. so 20 this will be 20 hours plus on the book of amos and well, depending, so we got, really, this is what's happening so that everyone here understands and everyone listens online. First, uh, for those listening online who participate participating in the Bible study exercise, I'm going to do everything in my power, depending on how this week goes, to do all of the review of the J. Vernon McGee audio from chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, hopefully by Friday. So that's going to take a lot of work. I'm going to see if I can have that all done by Friday. That's the plan. Uh, we finished one, two, and three doing it that way. We'll start four, hopefully as early as tomorrow. Maybe we'll do four and five tomorrow. That's that's going to wipe out doing everything else, but I want to get as much of that done before Friday, uh, before I take off and have gone for seven days and get way, 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 way behind. So that's the goal there. So really we got two things going on. Here at the church... We started with doing the observational reading, and the goal was to do the observational reading for all nine chapters to really help everyone participating in the Bible study exercise online with their observational reading. But almost everyone participating has already moved past their observational reading and moved to kind of the chapter analysis part. Um, so um, I think we did—I think I did it as much as I could, but you know there were times when either we didn't have a service or other things were happening, so there was just no way to continue doing that. Not only that, we then kind of got some questions in regards to, wait a minute, in Amos, is that prophecy? Or is that him telling what, you know, what had already happened, right? Almost as a reminder. So we spent all of that, what, an hour, an entire service working on trying to figure out the timing of all of the, those judgments of the nations in chapter one. Which I'm glad we did that. It stopped the observational reading. However, I'm glad we did that because it forced everyone to really dig into chapter 1 and go, okay, who's that nation? When did that happen? Who's that nation? When did that happen? And so if, if, that, if that benefited anyone, then that's glad. I'm glad that that happened. Once that occurred, then I'm like, okay, well, I can skip back and do the observational reading or we can kind of just start working almost like in a chapter analysis method as a church together. So, as we're doing it as a church, we made it to chapter 2, right? Um, uh, Everyone online, I'm about to start chapter 4. So, there's really like, there's the, what I'm doing with the church, and what I'm doing online, and the two are not in perfect harmony. I wish they were, but it's always hard to keep everything in perfect harmony. But hopefully... um, for those who are already ahead, who've already completed their work on chapter 3, hopefully going back and listening to these just adds more perspective and more time in the book, right? I mean, the goal here is to do the most comprehensive book Bible study method there is. So hearing multiple attempts to kind of do a verse-by-verse analysis, a chapter analysis, could only benefit everyone. At least I'm going to convince myself that the repetition will benefit someone somewhere. I don't know where, but I'm hoping it will, all right? So, we are going to continue. The only problem is tonight, before we can jump into where we need to be, we have to back up. All right, I've been, uh, a, see, this, I think it was this week. It may have been this week. It all blurs together at some point when you're doing so many different studies and trying to keep it all straight. Um. That a discussion arose about the key verse of the book. About the key verse of the book. I believe it was two, maybe three individuals who believed the key verse is in chapter three. They all, I think they all three had different ones, but all from chapter three. I thought that was interesting. I thought that was kind of fascinating that they all perceived that as they were working through the book, they got to chapter three, and like, that's it, that's the key verse. That's the verse that explains it. I always love when people have those moments because it it may say a lot. Um, Well, let's, let's ask this question. Why do you think different people come to different conclusions about what the key verse is? Why do you think that? I think it indicates that different people see Different emphasis in the book. Or like their perception. I don't want to say perception. They see that, oh, this is where the book is going. Or this is the emphasis. So they'll grab a verse that seems to go there. Well, somewhere else, someone else may go, no, no, no. I think the main focus of the book is this. So I I think it's interesting to see where, like, whenever someone decides this is the key verse. To to try try to determine where. Like when uh, we had... Even when Jude, when we were working on Jude, I think a lot of people, I kept saying, what's the hermeneutical key? What's the hermeneutical key? It took me weeks, I think, to get everyone convinced what the hermeneutical key was because clearly everyone else was having a completely different, I don't know what everyone else was thinking, a completely different perspective. So I think a lot of times... When you're reading the book over and over and over and over, a certain kind of like, okay, this is where it's going, this is what it's about, and then when you come across a verse that really captures that, that becomes your key verse. But someone else may think that the book has kind of has a different perspective, and they'll think that's the key verse. So what does that tell us about coming up with a key verse? What does that indicate about the whole practice of finding a key verse? Do, say that again, or Bobby? What were you saying? Everybody. Oh, de- definitely not the same verse. Well, I, here's what I want everyone to see. What I want everyone to realize is when you come up with a key verse, you need to realize that's an, that's an indicator of something. Right. When you figure when you think, oh, that's the key verse you need to stop because that's almost like a detector. Right. It's like it's like a smoke detector. It's like a, an alarm on your Apple watch saying you're you know, having a heart attack or whatever the case may be. Right. It's, it's war. Because what it's telling you is that this is what you think the book is about. This is what you think the book is about. So immediately you have to stop and go, okay, okay, okay. Now, you could be 100% right. Then your key verse may be right. But you have to at least stop and go, okay, okay. I've read the book this many times. It Does this verse really capture everything that I think the book is about? So what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to offer two completely different perspectives, or two different suggestions on the key verse. I know, I know this is going backwards, but that's okay. Because I think there are two that are interesting. One is based off a book right here. And the reason I want to start with a book is then nobody can get mad at me because, well, I didn't write it. Then the second one is one that I've just been, I've been struggling with and struggling. And I keep waiting for someone to email me going, I think it's this verse. But so far, no one has suggested it. And I'm baffled I'm baffled by why my, I, I, like, I'm baffled by why my perspective, like, am I that off on my understanding that no one agrees with me? I mean, no one. No books, no commentaries, no sermons. Nobody agrees with me. So I, I'm trying to figure out what possibly I can do wrong. So let me just state this. When you come up with a key verse, when you're studying a book, You need to understand that that first, that's just an indicator of what you think the book is about. You may be right, you may be wrong, but you need to at least listen to that indicator to make sure it's almost like a it's almost like a giving you an opportunity to change course. Right? It's almost giving you an opportunity to go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're going this direction. Now, if you keep going in this direction, are you going to find yourself so far off track it's not even funny? So, I think the key verse is a great exercise if you understand that it's indicating something about you. It may not be indicating anything about the text. Your key verse says more about you than it may say about the text. Does that make sense? All right, yes, no, I'm going to just assume all of you are like, yeah, you're so blown away by that, you don't know what to say. Okay, all right, here we go. All right, this book suggests that the key verse is chapter 7, verse 8. Chapter 7, verse 8. Bobby should remember this, because when we covered the minor prophets in the past, we spent a lot of time on this concept. Amos chapter 7, verse 8. I think you may have even brought one to the church. I think maybe you did, or someone did. All right? Amos chapter 7, verse 8. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And he said, A plumb line. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass them any more. What's a plumb line for those who don't know? Right. It becomes th- the standard which you mark or which you measure, right? So it's the, me- it's, can we call it the measuring line? Can we say it's the, the line you compare everything by? Right? Okay. So he's laying a plumb line down. And he's going to use that plumb line to to judge or to measure whom? Israel. So they're saying this is the key verse to the book. Well, you can kind of see it because the message is to whom? Go to Amos chapter 1. What verse? You can find it real quick. Amos chapter 1. Everyone should know this by now. Where is it? Should be in the first two verses. Maybe verse three. It's got to be one of those three. What is is it? How does verse one begin? The words of Amos. Which he saw concerning Israel. There we go. Which he saw concerning Israel. So we know that this is a message ultimately to Israel. And basically, the message is: I'm laying a plum. I'm laying a measurement down, and you're going to be found what? You're not going to be found in accordance to that standard. Okay. So some people think that that's the the message. Okay. That's interesting. That's other people think again that chapter three. I could go through the different ones that's been suggested, but that's okay. I'm just I don't know why. I don't know why. I can't get away from a certain verse in the book. And I'll give you an opportunity. It's found somewhere before chapter 3. So that means it's in chapter 1 or chapter 2. Before chapter 3. What do you think I possibly keep leaning to as a key verse? What do you, what do you think it could be? What do you think it could be? Anybody. We worked on chapter 1 together, so you should know all of chapter 1. We've done most of chapter 2, so you should know that. We're going to finish that tonight. What do you think? What do you think? I'll give you an opportunity to just throw out the wildest idea you have. I just cannot get away from the verse. I just keep going back to it over and over and over and over. I kind of hinted at it a little bit the last time we worked on Amos. I kind of hinted at it. Okay. Why do you think 2-4? Okay. It lists Judah's sins, doesn't it? Okay. Yeah, there's a lot there. <clears throat> okay, I'll I'll even narrow it down even more. It's in chapter 1. It's in chapter 1. How many verses in chapter 1? All right. Your chances are pretty good at this point. <clears throat> Your chances are pretty good. Do I Aha! Bobby's been listening to me preach long enough. Why do you think verse 2, Bobby? Why do you think I would go to verse 2? Uh, do, do you feel that a good portion of the book is God roaring? God is roaring. Roaring. And what is the result of that roaring? There are two results in this verse. What are the two things that happen as a result of his roaring? Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to read the verse, first of all, from a number of English translations, really quick. I'm going to read it from a number of English translations. I just cannot get away from this verse. I do not know why. I cannot tell you why. I just keep coming back to it over and over and over and over. Let me read it from a couple of things, all right? Amos chapter 1, verse 2, New International. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion, thunders from Jerusalem, and the, pasture, the pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. All right? Uh, The New Living Translation. This is what he saw and heard. The Lord's voice will roar from Zion, thunder from Jerusalem. The lush pastures of the shepherds will dry up. The grass on Mount Carmel will wither and die. The ESV, the Lord said the Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem, the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. The Berean Study Bible, the Lord roars from Zion, raises his voice from Jerusalem, the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the summit of Carmel withers. The King James says the habitation of the shepherds shall mourn. Right? In other words, the habitations, or the other places, the pasture, where the shepherds are at. It's going to what? Well, they say mourn. Or, wither up, dry up, right? Okay, so you've got a little bit of play on words there. And the top of Carmel withers. And those are just, the whole, the whole thing is fascinating to me, but I, I could almost say that the book of Amos, if I was to try to find a short t- title, the Lord roars and thunders from Jerusalem, or the Lord roars and thunders or the thundering and roaring, or the roaring and the thundering of the Lord. Because the whole book is full of a lot of thundering and roaring, is it not? So, I'm just going to read from a couple of commentaries, just because I think it's interesting, alright? So I'm going to go to a couple of commentaries on verse 2, just to see how they describe it, alright? Are you ready? Verse 2. Roar, in Joel 3.16, the Lord roars against the nations. Here his wrath is direct, directed primarily towards Israel. Amos, a shepherd, courageously warned the flock of God's pasture that they were in imminent danger from a roaring lion who turned out to be, to, out to be the ultimate shepherd of the flock. Carmel, known for its bountiful trees and lush gardens, Carmel means fertility or garden land and refers to the mountain range that runs to the uh, to east to west in northern Israel and juts out into the Mediterranean Sea. Notice the voice comes from Jerusalem, all right? The the roar of the voice is speaking of a thunderous voice. This is a warning from Jerusalem all the way to Carmel. That judgment is coming. That judgment is coming. Mount Carmel was a beautiful green pasture land. It had been the site of Elijah calling down fire from heaven to prove that God is God. Now even Carmel will not be spared. Meaning that his voice is going to roar and I don't care if you're a shepherd hiding out in the middle of nowhere. It's going to happen. I don't care if you're all the way at Mount Carmel where great victory for God was won. Nothing is going to be spared. Then immediately after chapter 1, verse 2, what starts happening? Verse after verse after verse throughout chapter 1. We, we covered it. Well, but judgment comes upon all these nations, right? All these judgment, 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 judgment. And it's a large geographical region, is it not? Right. So the Lord roars. Okay, then we come to chapter 2. The Lord, who, who, what's the first nation in chapter 2? Moab. Moab, boom, gone, all right, or judged. Next, Judah, boom, they, we know they're going into captivity. And then, Israel, and we know judgment is coming upon them. I just think 1, 2 captures everything. It's the Lord roaring from Jerusalem, and again, what's significant about mentioning uh, Jerusalem? Okay, but now there's something else, though. And remember, the whole problem is what's going on in the, in the, in the northern kingdom? Uh, they're, they're basically Bethel. Beth, remember, Bethel the, the becomes the capital of worship, right? Oh, okay. That's false. Where is the temple? Jerusalem. So, in other words, where God's place of worship was set, He's going to roar from there and bring judgment and all the other counter worship and all the other wrong that's being done. Everybody remember? Oh, okay, good. All right. So, I'm going to argue, I'm going to at least put forth the theory, and I know nobody agrees. Chapter 1, right from the very start, verse 2, sets out everything for us. This is a book of the roaring and the thundering of God that's going to be felt wherever the shepherds may be, all the way to the top of Mount Carmel. And everything in between. That's, I, and, I think, and I think immediately the book begins to carry that out, right? It's almost like, hey, this is what it's about. You want to hear that roar? Right, It's like the Lord roars, do you want to hear the roar? And then you start reading, and what do you hear? The roaring. The roaring. I, I'm going to make that argument. Okay, we'll see how popular my argument is, but I'm going to go with that. Now, go back to chapter 2. Does anybody remember where we stopped? Chapter 2, 6 through 8. And remember, we're using the curriculum, right? Everybody remember that? Okay, and we talked about the poor, okay? And God is very upset with how they've treated the poor, right? Agreed? Can we say he is roaring against them for how they've treated the poor? Okay, I think we can. And we spent a lot of time with that, and we looked up all the verses about the poor, and I still think that that's a major part of this, but we don't have time to go back through that. So that that means we stopped at which verse? We Stopped at verse six, did we not? Yes. Yeah, we read six we'll read let's read two, six through eight, just to read it, and then we'll go ahead and finish it, because there's one thing that we have to talk about here. Okay? Chapter two, verse six Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver. Uh, and the poor for a pair of shoes. They pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek and a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. We dealt with the poor portion of it. What we have not dealt with is this part about going into the same maid. All right? So, I'm going to go back and just read this really quick. Okay? The second wrong of Israel was the oppression of the poor. A true measure of a person is how they treat the weaker or lesser, or the less powerful. And Israel fell the test. The picture of those who were who were not poor pushing the head of the poor into the dirt. They were also obstructing the way of the meek. In God's law, the needy had a pathway for the most basic needs to be met. Disregarding the word of God, Israel refused to help those who were in need and casu- callously blocked the road to. Freedom, which we talked all, we spent a lot of time talking about the poor last week, did we not? Okay, now, the next wrong Amos listed was the abuse of the young maid. According to them, this is likely a reference to a cultic prostitute. Cultic prostitution was clearly prohibited by the Word of God. Everyone go to Deuteronomy 23 and tell me what you find in verse 17. Because they have it in parentheses as this proves it. And so I like for you to look and tell me what you find. Deuteronomy 23.17. What do we find here? Deuteronomy 23.17. What do we have in 23.17? A shrine prostitute. Right, that, how does the King James have it? There should be no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite of the sons of Okay, a whore. The King James says a whore of Israel. But this one kind of seems to indicate what they're referring to, possibly. A shrine prostitute. In other words, a prostitute serving a false religion, right? Remember, this is this, just make sure we remember, and many of the ancient religious structures... What was a common thing was sex, sexuality or engagement in sex was a part of basically the worship. Does that make sense? Right? Everybody got that? Everybody understand? Okay. Now, go back to Amos. So they believe that this is the abuse of a young maid. This is likely a reference to a cultic prostitute. Cultic prostitution was clearly prohibited by the Word of God. As with sexual relations with the same woman by father and a son. Look at Deuteronomy 22:30. Go ahead and say in Amos, make sure Amos is marked, but go back to Deuteronomy 22:30. I want to keep both, I want to make sure you can see correlation. Deuteronomy 22:30. What's the law in Deuteronomy 22:30? All right, so in other words, they're not supposed to have relations with the same woman. Right? Everybody see that? You agreed? All right. So, very specific rules here. So, what, what happens, go back to Amos 2. What happens in Amos 2? What happens? Well, they're, yeah, they're going in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. In other words, what is God's people doing? The very things God has told them not to, and what are they doing? They're acting like the world around them. They're acting like the world around them. Remember, I've got to continue to emphasize that over and over. It's just, I, 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 the reason I emphasize this so much is I'm just always baffled how the Bible constantly shows God's people acting like the world but in evangelical Christianity, we convince ourselves that we don't act like the world, and if we do act like the world, then we're not saved. But the church has been acting like the world forever, okay? God's people is constantly doing it, okay? It's not an excuse, but it's just funny how the Bible paints a different picture than we paint, right? The Bible paints a picture, of, hey, God's people, they're basically as bad as what remember what happens in First Corinthians. What was the issue with in 1 Corinthians? Wasn't it the temple prostitutes? So all the way up to the New Testament, the same problem was existing. And again, amongst whom? God's people. No, not not in 1 Corinthians. God's people. The church. The church. The church. Israel had the problem. The church has the problem. It's always the problem. It's always the problem. And and I, I don't know how we can't understand that. All right? Now... What do we have in verse 8? Amos 2, eight, And they laid themselves down upon clothes, laid to pledge by every altar, and they drank the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. What in the world is going on in chapter 2, verse 8? Okay? Well, let's, let's see how the, this comment, uh, the, the curriculum handles it. Verse 8 refers to the practice of a debtor leaving his cloak with a lender as collateral for a loan. But even the law demanded that the cloak, by e- uh, that, that the cloak be returned by evening when the cool weather returned. So in other words, if, you, if you're a debtor, you leave your cloak with a l- lender uh, for collateral. Right? So, if I borrow something from Bobby, I have to leave my cloak with him as collateral. But what does Bobby have to do when it starts getting late at night and it gets cool? Why does he have to return it? Because he has to think about the other person and making sure that they are cared for. In other words, he is not to show selfishness, but he is to show selflessness. Does that make sense? Right? Does that understand what's going on? All right, so... But even the law demanded this. Instead, the rich oppressed the poor by keeping their cloaks and then using the fines to purchase wine for their false worship rituals. The exploitation of debtors was offensive to God. The Israelites were taking advantage of the poor and sadly, they knew better. Amos sounded the warning alarm to Israel. These wrongs would not go unpunished. So once again, this is basically another way to take advantage of the poor. Another way of looking out for themselves. So Israel is committing... All, so once again, this is what I want you to see. Whether it was Judah or whether it was Israel, what were they both guilty of? Well, they were guilty of many of the same things that the world was guilty of. That, that, that's the thing I want you to... If you don't get anything, I don't care if you... If you start in Genesis... What do we say about God's people? I mean, if you think about it, the first family, right? I would, I would assume Adam and Eve knew who God was, right? I would assume Cain and Abel knew who God was. I mean, God even spoke to Cain, right? So, they didn't have the world... Did they have the world influencing them? No! I mean, Cain and Abel. I mean, who else was there to influence them? There wasn't, there wasn't television, wasn't movies, wasn't video games, wasn't... Nothing! Okay? And what happened? Cain killed his brother. Now, I want you to listen carefully because in the curriculum, right right after they're explaining all these sins of Israel, they ask a question. And the question is so tip, temp, uh, or typical of the way many Christians think. And I... I feel that there is a... I truly believe that even amongst Christians who believe in total depravity, they don't actually believe in total depravity in practice. It's just theoretical. And let me try try to explain, because this is just so crazy they ask this question. All right, so can we all agree that Judah and Israel and and the... I mean, we can go back and list all the things they do wrong. You see in chapter two all the things Judah did wrong, correct? How many how many total things is listed of Judah? Is it just two things, or is it three? Reject the law. Don't keep his decrees. Okay, false gods. Three things? Okay. But once again, false gods, all right? Then Israel, there's a lot more specific things laid out. Both of them are guilty, right? Can we not say that in both cases, both Judah and Israel start living and acting like people in the world? Yes. Okay. Now, oh, this next question. Oh, See, I would have loved this question as a, as, a young, as a younger Christian, maybe even 10 years ago, maybe even 15 years ago. I would have loved this next question and I would have made it like a focal point of my sermon. But I no longer like the question. I hate the question. What do you think they get ready to ask right here in the study guide? What do you think? No, that, actually, that's an okay question. Here's what they ask. What are the dangers of allowing culture to decide what is right and what is wrong. This implies that what Judah and Israel did is that Judah and Israel looked to the world for right and wrong. Not only were they given right and wrong, but I I just want to, I want to make sure we understand this. This is so, so very important because there's this just mentality built into the way Christians think and I don't understand the mentality. The mentality is we're all good. Right? And all we gotta be careful for is the bad people out there. The bad people, if we looked, we, that we, we can't look to them for right or wrong or we'll start doing wrong. We can't listen to them or we'll start doing wrong. And I hate the whole concept. The problem is us, not them. If the culture didn't exist, we would do things the culture would be doing. We don't need the culture. We don't need to see the culture to come up with it. Cain didn't need the culture to decide to kill his brother. I, I don't understand the Christian mentality that, no, no, don't look, don't see. You, you can pluck out your eyes. You can rip off your ears. You're still going to sin. The problem is inside of us. The problem wasn't that Israel woke up one day and go, hey guys, we're going to determine right and wrong by looking to them. No, the problem is Israel woke up and guess what they possessed? A sinful nature. And what does the sinful nature always choose? What it wants. It's not the law of God. The world doesn't have to convince us of what's wrong and right. All the world has to do is just show us something that we want. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And don't even have to do that. Exactly. I I know I've preached this so many different ways. I still don't think people understand what I'm saying. But because I'll hear someone say something, I'm like, that's completely opposite to everything I've said in every podcast for 10 years. The problem is us. The problem is us. The problem was, man, if they would have just stopped looking to the world to decide wrong and right, Israel and Judah would have gotten everything right. That's such garbage. I mean, yeah, I mean, Israel was messing up. I mean, it's just the the human race started messing up from, well, even before the fall. But from the fall forward, you don't need anybody else. The problem is inside of us. I, I, I just wish, I, I, I honestly don't believe Christians believe in total depravity. I really don't. I, I, I think they believe it theoretically, but when it comes to practice, they think that I've got a good heart and the bad stuff's out there. And the bad stuff is in here. All right, now, We'll go back, because they have this interesting thing in the middle for a Bible skill, but we'll skip the Bible skill. Let's go down to uh, Amos 2, 9 through 11. Let's at least finish the chapter. Well, I don't even know if this is going to help us finish the chapter, but okay. I wanted to do chapter 3, but you know, that's the way it goes. All right. Verse 9. Everybody ready? Yet destroyed I, the Amorite, before them whose height was like the height of the cedars. And he was strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. Also I brought you up from the land of, the, of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up of your sons for prophets and your young men for Nazarites. Stop right here. What do you think he is doing in 9, 10... At eleven, what do you think he's doing? Well, can, would it be fair to say this? Is he not reminding them of something? Okay, okay, good. Okay, good. Okay. Right. So we all can agree that he's reminding them. What are the two things he's, or three things he's reminded them of in those verses? He's reminding them of, I destroyed the Amorites, delivered you from Egypt, and made your sons prophets. Prophets. Well, so We stopped before the Nazarite thing, or maybe I read the Nazarite thing, but we'll just start with prophets, okay? Three things. Can we agree? Yes? All right. All right. Let's see what, how the curriculum handles this. They say the following words. Israel needed to only look back to the past to remember he was a God of grace who would help them in times of need. Okay. Maybe he did help them. You could also see that God is also what? The reminder also reminds them how he brings down and destroys other nations. So I don't know. Is it like, hey, remember all the help I gave you or remember how I brought down other nations? We could go either direction here, but okay. One such evidence of his grace was giving them the promised land during the times of the patriarchs. God worked through patriarchs like Abraham to drive out the Amorite people. They were the people who inhabited the land prior to the conquest and the enslavement in Egypt. The passage describes the fear of the Israelites as they approached the promised land, stating that they saw the enemy's height like the height of the cedars and its fortification as strong as the oaks. This resembled the report of the spies from Kadesh when Moses sent scouts into the land of Canaan. The spies, all except Joshua and Caleb, saw the Canaanites' physical size and entrenched an army reason to retreat rather than to go forward. As a result of their unbelief, the children of Israel wandered in 40 years in the wilderness before the conquest of the land. But when the conquest began, God had given them the victory. God was full of grace, even though the Israelites had lacked faith and gave them the promised land. Their past history would should have encouraged Israel to turn to God's grace. All right. Well, well, We'll look at the rest here in a minute. How do, you, do you see that that's what he's doing there? He's reminding them of his past grace? Or do you think he's reminding them of his bringing down nations? What do you think? How do you perceive it? Is this reminding them of his past grace? I'm giving you the opportunity to say, instead of me telling you, Because you know that's the. Okay, Grace. What do you think? Anybody else? It is a reminder of the past. It definitely, we all agree it's a reminder of the past. So, in other words, reminding them of, do you think he, he's reminding them of what I've done for you, demonstrating their their responsibility, or do you think he's reminding them of his grace that he's shown to them? Um, well, it's grace. Okay. That, it, it, you know, by destroying the it's, it's a separation from the so Obviously, they were judged previously. Right. So you're saying, in a by way, he's, he, there's, there's a lot of things going on here. Hey, I destroyed your enemies, basically. And then I gave you everything you need. And then here we are. So it's not just a reminder of grace. It's a reminder of, yeah, I did all this for you. But that should have put you in a very advantageous position. Okay. Right. But hey, by, by the next part, by saying I raised up your sons to be prophets, it's definitely like, hey, I got rid of that. You were in a good position. Okay. Alright, I, th- I think maybe that, that's good too. Did, did you have something, Sarah? No? Okay. Alright, so we're going we're to kind of go in that direction. Let's see what else they have to say. All right. They go on to say this. Israel's unfaithfulness to God was in stark contrast to God's actions towards them. Though Israel was unfaithful, God didn't just write them off. Instead, he gave messengers to be delivered through his prophets. In the 8th century BC, God had raised up Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, and Amos to bring prophetic messages to his people. He also raised up some of the young men. Now, uh, before we mention Nazarites. So they can, now it's interesting, they see that the, uh, uh, let's go back to those verses. He destroyed the Amorites, and I brought you out of Egypt. It's interesting, the curriculum kind of sees that as, see, that's a proof of my grace. But when it says, I raised up prophets, your sons as prophets, they seem to indicate, that the way they look at it, is that's almost more of like, hey, you've been given warning after warning after warning after warning after warning. They almost take that more negative. Hey, I raised up your sons to be prophets. Not that, hey, see... I put you in a good position, but I did all of this wonderful thing for you, and then I gave you your sons to be prophets to warn you, and you haven't listened. They kind of go from that direction. I kind of see what you're saying, though. Hey, I wiped all of these people out, and then I made your sons prophets. In other words, I put you in the most advantageous place. And either way, it is a contrast to where they are now, to all these things that have happened for them, no matter how we interpret them. Can we agree? And so not only did he raise their sons to be prophets, what else did he do? Yeah, and of your younger men for Nazarites. Now the Nazarites were the special class of young men who demonstrated their dedication to God by taking a refrain, taking a vow to refrain from what? Alcohol? Never cut their hair? Not to follow themselves by touching the dead. Everybody remember that? Who is, who is the most be, what, best or well-known uh, Nazarite? Samson, okay? Who broke every one of those vows, okay? Who broke them all? Who still shows up in Hebrews chapter 11, okay? Which I find fascinating, but okay. All right. Samson was the best known of the Nazarites prior to the time of Amos. Rather than to leave the Israelites to their enemies, God raised up a deliverer who would preserve their nation. A quick look at the history of Israel revealed that God was full of grace and awaited Israel's repentance to receive the grace they needed to avoid further judgment for their sins. Even though they were committing many of the same sins as the nations around them, please note, once again, they should have known better than than others how God would respond to them with His grace. Likewise, Christians should recount God's gracious activities in their lives and respond with obedience rather than disobedience. Let me state this again. See, this... This stuff drives me so much. Oh, Reading Christian literature just makes me just sometimes want to lay on the floor and just scream. Okay, this, this is how Christian literature really treats everyone. All right? Hey, you're a Christian, Bobby? You just should remember what God has done for you and you should remember God's law and you should just stop doing that. That's simple. That's only... That, that's... I mean, that's literally what they're saying. Hey... Guess what God has given us his word? Just remember what he did. Remember how he sh- and just don't do it anymore. Don't you wish it was that simple? It's like I just don't understand like I really struggle with Christianity on this very like this at this very fundamental level. Because Christianity has been taught to me my whole life. Just don't do wrong. You can choose not to do wrong. Just stop it. Right? I mean, this is literally how it's been taught. You're now a Christian, you have the power of the Holy Spirit, and you've been set free to say no to sin. But every... I've been taught that my whole Christian life. I keep sinning. And everyone who's ever taught me that, they keep sinning. <laughs> okay? So, I don't think, you know what, this is mind-boggling to me. 2,000 years of church history, and I still don't think we understand the Christian life. I really wish Christianity was that simple, that, okay, I got God's word, I read it, I remember what God has done for me, what God tells me to do, and I just say, I'm going to wake up in the morning, and I'm going to do right. Now, I can pull that off if I reduce sin to the most basic, 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 basic external activity. I can come close. But if I look at sin the way Jesus describes sin in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm done. Right? In fact, even if I go to the Old Testament, be ye holy as God is holy, I'm done. I mean, just, just, just start with that one command. That, that, that command is, is in Leviticus. Be holy as I am holy. I'm finished. I don't even need any other scripture in the Old Testament. I'm done. I have never accomplished that one day in my life. Then you're getting ready to go to another thing that he talks in the Old Testament about loving God with all our heart. Never done that. I've never loved others as I love myself. I've never done that. Those are three commands I have never fulfilled one time since my conversion in October of whatever, 1980, whatever it was, at First Baptist Church, Tuscola, Texas. I've yet to do those commands one time, and that's from 1980 something to 2022. Oh, fast approaching October 2022. But when I read a Christian, when I read Christian publications, it's just simple, like, what? God's given you His Word. Just don't do it. Let me me read to you the way they said. Likewise, Christians should recount God's grace, gracious activity in their lives, and respond with obedience rather than disobedience. Seeing God's grace should not make us, not make you, not make one want to sin, but more, but less. So we should just look at God's grace, and we should just want to stop sinning. Well, I've been looking at God's grace my whole Christian life. You know what's still inside of me? i want to sin. I know that y'all might have overcome it, but the want to is still there. Because you know what I want? My way, my will, my thoughts, my pleasure, my satisfaction. I want mine. I, I just... oh okay good. that's a good question I like this I like this okay well my, my point is depressing yeah my, my my view of the Christian but it's not depressing no one would buy you the curriculum we were at a coffee shop yesterday morning and there was a bible study group sitting next to him okay everything but they were saying some of the things that I'm saying or opposite of what I'm saying what the curriculum is saying we need to try harder. We need to try harder. We need to try harder. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah, by no means am I condemning that. that, that the, the. Oh, yeah, we, we do need to try harder. I would agree. But, so, so what do you think? What do you think then is the correct view? Okay, you're asking me, but I'm going to flip it and ask you. Okay, we're commanded to strive with the absolute, clear, 100% factual understanding that we will never succeed. S- no, that's, the that, that's absolute truth, right. I know a lot of people would just sit here and say, there's not to be more. Bobby's like, no, there's not. Okay, all right. Right. What oh what's the point? I like that question. Okay, what do you think the point is? What what do you think the point is in seeing all that that even though now I know the curriculum has to kind of take take it up. Do I? Okay, Rema- Okay, this is just this is just the way Christianity works. Anytime you re- and anytime you read a scripture. That says you should do this, you must do this, this is what you do, don't do this, this is wrong, this is wrong, do this, try to do this. What is, what's the category for all of those scriptures? Law. law. And how do we always respond to law? Christ did. So in Christ, I do fulfill all of that, praise God. And I, my, and I am spiritually secure in an imputed righteousness, and so the Christian life is the never-ending impossible task of seeking to live out and practice what is true positionally. So we, yes, we try, but you can't put forth the idea that that's just the way it's going to work because it doesn't work that way. So I think the, the, issue, is, the, the issue is that first you have to start with this understanding. I think first of all, we have to start with the understanding that we can't Right, we got to start with that understanding because the minute you think people, you convince people they can, well you, you well you lead well you, you lead yourself to all kinds of trouble. One, you have to start pretending that you are when you're not, and that's dangerous because I lived that life thinking that I was when I wasn't. Okay. Or number two, you start lessening the commands until you can say that you are fulfilling them, and start. And any time you don't, you just call it a mistake and say it's no longer a sin. Those are all damaging, horrible. I think we start with the idea, I can never ultimately do this. Now, so when I, when I try to live out the Christian life, I understand I'm going to fail, and I'm going to rely on the imputed righteousness, but I try my best to live out what I can, but knowing that I'm never going to be able to do it. In some ways, it's freeing, Because I should try, but knowing I'm never going to ultimately accomplish it. The only other way is that you can accomplish it. You either start with the idea that you can, which at some point, if you're like sane, you're going to go insane because you're going to realize you can't. Or you have to become self-deceived. Or you start off with knowing that you can't, but Christ did. And I rest in the fulfillment of Christ as I try to live out to the best of my ability what I can do, but trusting in the fact that Christ already did it. So I'm operating from a position that Christ already took care of all of this for me. Does that make any sense? Well, it does. Uh, oh no, I understand that. That's always that, no. I, I understand that. That's 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 well. I would say this. Okay, you can ask me why even why even do it anyway. Okay, fine. You can ask that question, but. You're telling me, and my question would be to you, well, what happens if you don't try? And almost immediately, they're going to say, well, you're not saved. Which immediately makes them walk themselves right into a gospel of works instead of a gospel of grace. So, so, so my, my question, before you ask me, I'm going to ask you, what happens if you don't? What happens if you try and you keep failing? Does, does that prove you're not saved? Because you believe you can I'm going to argue you can't. And if you can't, then does that prove you're not saved? Well, no, I can't do it perfectly. So then you're telling me you can't. So then we're on, we're on the same page. So I would put it that way. But my argument is wherever, all through Romans, whenever Paul emphasizes God's grace, what's the, what ne- he always knows, what's the next question? Which is, well, then why don't I just keep sinning? Just because someone abuses grace, doesn't change the fact that we have to live in grace because we don't have any other option does that does that make any kind of sense i i would just argue that like oh, good question you're right um you may not even want to do it anymore so let me ask you what happens if you don't and then you're gonna say well you're not saved okay so what happens if you try and you fail Well, at least trying means I'm saved. So, you can try and fail 24-7 and you're saved, but if I don't try, I'm not saved. So, trying makes you saved. No, 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 no. trying doesn't make me saved. Well, you just said if I don't try, then I'm not saved. So, how am I saved? Am I saved by an imputed righteousness? And you're saying that I can be saved not even by a practical righteousness, but just trying to obtain a practical righteousness. So, does trying save you? Right? So, that... So in other words, I can just back them right back into the same corner just by flipping around. The bottom line is, if they admit that they can't, and I admit that I can't, I'm like, well, welcome to my team, because both of us can't. And again, I would just give them three commands. Be holy as God is holy. You've ever done it one time? No. And if they say they have, I'm just going to get up and leave the coffee house, because I'm with an insane person. Yeah, I, I, I'm in, they're, they're insane, okay? They're not. Have you ever loved God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? No. Have you ever loved? So you're telling me three simple commands you've never once ever fulfilled, but you're telling me that I'm not saved if I don't try. <laughs> so not trying makes me sick, but never fulfilling it makes me say Like, that just is a mind-boggling, confused mess. The only thing I can say is myself, that... The Christian life is one of a a morality that we will never meet. But it's already been met by Christ. So we operate from the perspective of my position, it's done. Now I'm going to step out and try to live it out as imperfectly as I can. Not to earn it or to prove it, because I can't earn it and I can't prove it. Can I prove an imputed righteousness? The only way I could prove an imputed righteousness is if my, if my, if it was, let me state it this way. I can only prove an imputed righteousness unless it, unless that imputed righteousness actually gives me righteousness. And if it gives me righteousness, it's no longer imputed, it's infused, which now, guess where? Don't go to another Protestant church, go to a Catholic church. And then guess what happens when you get into the Catholic church? You're never going to make it to heaven, your best bet is purgatory. Oh, power, power, power. Yeah, we've been fed it so long. I know. I w- look, I wish I had the power. I, 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 man, if I had the power, Christianity would be wonderful. But I got 2,000 years of church history. I, I, you know what? I, that's, where I, I, that's where I do have a kinship with Luther. Luther realized he didn't have the power. Luther realized he could never do it. He realized, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. You keep telling me to say five Hail Marys, three Our Fathers, and then about the time I leave the confession booth, I have to turn back around and go to the confession booth because I'm a miserable sinner. The problem is not everyone thinks like Luther. I don't know how we don't. Because again, all I need to hear is be holy as God is holy, and I'm done, I'm finished, I'm I'm, I've never accomplished that for three seconds of any day. But I do understand how it kind of makes the Christian life confusing because we basically have been brought up that Christianity is a, more, a system of morality. And now you must meet that morality somehow. And if you don't meet the morality to a certain level, then you're never saved. And that's even in the Protestant world. Or it's a moral system, and I think you were kind of going there, that you can accomplish which I wish we could, but 2,000 years of church history shows we can't. So I, I wish there was an easy way, like I could just give you, all I know is I have to live my life in the imputed righteousness and then live my practical life understanding the reality of my practice, which is always, woe is me, I'm undone. So I live in grace Knowing that no matter how much I mess up, I'm still covered in a practical righteousness. Or, uh, I'm sorry, a positional righteousness. Does that help at all? Maybe? I mean, it's a good, those questions are awesome because it gets to the heart of of what I, what I I have problems right here. It's like, they, uh... They, they just immediately act like, hey, just look at what God's law says and you'll do it. And I, I wish it was that simple. I wish I could just like, okay, guys. And this is how I would have preached this sermon earlier. If I would have used that, I would have said tonight, we, this week we need to remember God's grace. I need to remember God's judgment. And therefore we'll live better this week. But guess what? By, by next Sunday, guess where everyone would be? The same place you are right now. You wouldn't be better. Thank you. That's why I keep emphasizing it over and over. Israel never was better. They had the law, they had the prophets, they had God in their midst, and they were never better. <laughs> okay. Okay. First Corinthians, they were never better. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, hey, the things I want to do, I don't I wish he would have listed the things he did wrong, because we all minimize it to such a level that it couldn't have been anything serious. But no, everyone in Hebrews 11, They're all messed up. Sinners, big time. Yeah, (laughs) big time. And guess what, who we are? Sinners, all right? Now, just briefly, 2, 12 through 16. Well, we don't have time. We're just going to have to stop. We're just going to have to stop. But, that he gave. He, he chose some of the sons to be Nazarites, and what did they do to the Nazarites? <laughs> what did they do? They made them drink wine. They made them drink wine. Don't you like that that phraseology? Now, some say "made." What, what do the other translations have? Gave. gave. The Nazarites had become symbolic burdens burdensome nags to people who were determined to ignore God. Consequently, Israel sought to eliminate the new sense of the Nazarites by coercing them to drink wine, thus breaking their vow to God. Then the Israelites would no longer have to face the accusation of their devoted lives in their midst. So in other words, hey, these guys are getting on my nerves, so they gave them wine. Now please understand, the Nazarites, consecrated to God, no one made them. <laughs> okay? So that means even the Nazarites were still what? Sinners, amazing, amazing, that even they were sin- Because on one hand, it's almost like they were holding down the Nazarites, going, drink, 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 drink. No, they were coerced them. Just, in other words, hey, you want a drink? Oh, oh I, I got to do it, I got to do it. And you're like, well, that means they're pathetic and they're weak, just like all of us. Then they, command, then they told the, 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 the prophets to stop talking, right? Which, once again, just demonstrates they, they didn't want what? They didn't want to see God's morality. They didn't want to hear God's morality, which is just like us. We're no different. All right? I know we got a little detour. So let me try my best. We'll just stop here because those were great, great questions. And I hope you understand my frustration with the study guide. You asked me, how should the study guide, how should the study guide uh, be written? Okay? I would have said something along these lines. All right. Seeing God's grace should make us realize how far we fall short of God's grace and make us run to God's grace more so. It should make us more aware of our sin and drive us back to that grace. See, the, the Christian life is basically this. We, we are constantly reminded in God's word of all of his rules. Yes? And every day we live our life demonstrating how far we fall short of those rules, which should immediately drive us back to where? Think of every day like this, okay? Okay? You start your day here, right? Whenever you read the word, hear the word, you're immediately confronted with what? God's law, right? And immediately, what should you do? You should immediately realize that you are fallen short of it, which should drive you right back to where? God's grace. In a sense, we start in God's grace. We are confronted with God's law. We try to live it out. Immediately, we realize how far we fall short of it, which should send us right back to God's grace. So, it's a perpetual state of seeing our sin, right? Or seeing God's standard, attempting to live out God's standard, realizing how far we fall short of God's standard, running right back to God's grace for forgiveness. We should perpetually keep what should be our perpetual attitude one of humility. One of gratitude. Every day I start saved by grace, say by an imputed righteousness. Oh, what does God's word say? Well, man, it gives me a lot of the sins that Israel committed. Man, I'm guilty of those same sins. Okay, I'm going to try not to do those things. I'm going to try to live out the right life. Boom. And then guess what I find out? I fall short. So where do I need to go back to? God's grace. Once again, broken, humbled, but gratitude that I have God's grace to stay in even when I try. So we never forget God's law because we're confronted with it over and over and over and over. We should try to live it. But it's only going to take you about 15 minutes realizing how far you fall short. We should make you go right back to God's grace. Israel's sins reminds us of our sins. We should strive not to do them. But guess what we're going to find out? That we keep doing them. And so we need to be reminded once again of God's grace. If that makes sense. All right, we'll have to stop there. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Very interesting discussion tonight. I don't know if it deviated too much from chapter two, but I think it's very, very key to understanding how many Christians approach these kinds of books and how we need to correct it. Forgive us for our wrong way of handling it and help us understand our true nature your true grace and our need for it, continually. We ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said.